An English Puritan, John Flavel, once said, They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. There's a lot of truth in this, in that those who know God as He has revealed Himself in His Word, His holiness, His majesty, His greatness, and those who know themselves as the Scriptures reveal us to be um, after the fall, which is rebellious creatures, uh, will lead us to humble ourselves before the Lord and to not be proud, for there is nothing to be proud about. And in today's passage, we will be seeing how Paul writes to the Philippians about this very thing. And my desire is this morning that you and I would come to grow in our understanding of who God is, His character, what He has done for us, so that we would imitate Him and walk in His footsteps. This is what Paul wanted the Philippians to know then and what he would want us to know today. So if you're taking notes today, our main point is this. Strive for unity by following Christ's example of humility. Strive for unity by following Christ's example of humility. And if you're taking notes, our outline for today consists of three points. And they are, one, the mandate, strive for unity. Second, the means, in humility. And third, the model, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so if you missed any of those, don't worry, we will be, I'll be repeating them as we um, go through them. Uh, but now I'll ask you to please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 11. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles that's in front of you, it's you can find it out on page 980. Page 980. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you haven't been with us for uh, this sermon series, uh, which is a one-off uh, sermon um, series that we're doing as uh, we're also going through Romans, so far in this letter, we've seen that this letter is Paul's response to the Philippian church for their generosity, for their participation in the gospel with him, 
for their contribution, a financial contribution that they offered him through one of their very members, Epaphroditus. And Paul has opened his letter by expressing his gratitude for this partnership and for God's work in them. Paul also wrote to give the Philippians an update of his circumstances in Rome. He wanted to reassure them that the suffering that he was experiencing was actually not something that, that, that they should worry about. They were supposed to rejoice with him because Paul knew that his persecution was actually serving to advance the gospel. So he wanted to reassure them of this. And most of this first chapter deals with Paul's informing the Philippians about his circumstances in Rome. That is, until we get to the end of chapter 1, where he turns his attention to the Philippians' circumstances. Paul was concerned with their progress in the faith, as we see there in uh, chapter 1, verse 25, because their progress in the faith was related to the progress of the gospel in Philippi. And the last time we were in this letter, we saw that Paul exhorted the Philippians to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And they were supposed to do this by standing firm in the gospel, in unity, in gospel unity, as we saw last time. And they were not to be frightened by their opponents. Just as Paul was facing opposition in Rome uh, for the gospel, the Philippians were also. And we find in the letter that these opponents were non-Christians who were harassing them, as we see there in verse 28 of chapter 1. Uh, and we know that they were outsiders uh, because we're told that these, these opposers of the gospel were doomed for destruction, something that's not true of insiders or of Christians. So these opponents were the source of their suffering and one of the reasons for why Paul called them to unity. So here we have a church that was in a Roman colony that was anti-gospel. For the, for the Philippians, it was not easy to be a Christian because of the external opposition that they were facing. And as we will see today, there is also internal opposition to the gospel. And this has implications for us being that we also live in a culture that opposes the gospel. And because we also have this internal opposition ourselves. So this brings us to our passage for today. We come to our first point then, which is the mandate, strive for unity. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. We read there, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul had received word from Epaphroditus about the Philippian situation. And one of the things that Paul had learned about the Philippians was that they were experiencing some suffering, as we just mentioned. But something else that Paul had learned from Epaphroditus was that there was some disunity going on in the church. And we see that uh, because of what the attention that Paul gives to in this letter. But if you look with me uh, here in the same letter, chapter 4, in verses 2 and 3, we find that Paul writes to two women and he says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help 
these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. And he continues going on. So there was some disunity going on in the church. Now, this church was a church that was unlike the other churches that Paul wrote to. This was actually a good church. We see that this was a church that loved each other. And Paul writes in chapter 1, My prayer is that your love would abound, that it would grow, that it would continue. But even a church like this, a church that was great, had some problems within. So as far as we can tell from the letter, their disunity wasn't something major. But Paul addressed it in order to prevent the destruction that it could cause. And once again, in this letter, we find that Paul's pastoral love is seen in that before giving a call to action, he brings to mind the gospel blessings that's true of all Christians. So let's look at three ways that Paul motivates Christians to strive for unity. Let's look at these motivations. Verse 1 of chapter 2 begins with, So if there is any encouragement. This is connected to what came previously, starting in verse 27, which says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he gives us some if statements. So this can be read as, therefore, because of what I just said. And these if statements can be a little confusing. And they, be, they may be better understood as since or because statements. The reason is because these aren't probable truths. These are instead rock-solid truths that Christians in all places and at all times can bank their trust on. So the first thing that Paul reminds us of is our encouragement in Christ. All Christians have received God's grace of knowing Christ. Paul writes this in chapter 1, verse 29, that it has been granted to the Philippians to know Christ, just as it has been granted to us Christians today to know Christ. And an outflow of this is that knowing Christ, repenting and believing on Christ leads to being in Christ and praise God because at one point we were enemies according to the Bible because sin caused a separation. And while that is encouraging, we also see that this is true in suffering. The Philippians were suffering for the sake of Christ just as Paul was suffering and just as Christ was suffering or had suffered for us. Our participation in the rejection, in rejection of the gospel is evidence then of our being in Christ. So first he says, because there is encouragement in Christ. But next, Paul says, because there is comfort from love. Christians have received God's comfort from love. For God has lavished His love on us by calling us to be His children, John writes in 1 John 3.1. God's love is evident in everything that He has done from us, everything from creating us to His patience with us in our rebellion, to His revealing of Christ to us and the salvation that He grants us in Christ. There is great comfort from this love that God has poured out on us. So there is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort from love. But third, He points us to fellowship in the Spirit. 
It is by the Spirit that we are united to Christ and to one another as we form the one body of Christ, Christ being the head of the body. And it is Christ, it is the Spirit that applies Christ's work to us by faith. And it is His work that enables us to stand firm for the gospel, just as Paul wrote to the Philippians, just as Paul also trusted that the Spirit, in accordance with the prayers of the Philippians, would work out for His deliverance. So just as the Spirit would ensure that Paul's defense of the gospel would turn out for his good, so it is for us when we suffer for the sake of Christ. We find encouragement in Christ. We find comfort from love. We find fellowship in the Spirit. And last, Paul reminds Christians of the affection and sympathy that has been received. In one of his letters to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, 1, 3 to 4, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort we ourselves are comforted by God. These truths show us the blessings upon blessings upon blessings that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have poured out on our lives. And Paul reminds us of these truths to comfort us as we face different oppositions in this world, but also to encourage us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. So having looked at the motivation, we now look at this uh, mandate here in the same first point. In verse 2, we read Paul saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now, at first glance, Paul's call here of completing his joy appears to be going against what he is trying to get these Christians to do. What does it mean when Paul says, okay, I want you guys to complete my joy, right? To understand this, we can look at a Proverbs, for example, Proverbs 10.1 that says, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. The point being that as a father who cared for the Philippians, Paul wanted them to live lives worthy of the gospel in the midst of suffering by pursuing gospel unity. Their obedience to Christ, their obedience would please Christ, and because Paul's life was all about living for Christ, Christ's joy would be Paul's joy. So Paul's affection for them was the same affection that Christ had for them. So by completing his joy, um, this is accomplished by pursuing unity, as we see there in verse 2. And this pursuit of unity is seen in two in two ways. The first way that we see that this unity is to be pursued is by having the same love. Paul was saying, because you have experienced the love of God, display the same love towards each other by being united. This was Paul's prayer for them. As he writes, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more. And it is God's love for us that enables us to have love for Him, which also fuels our love for one another. Unless we have this love among us, disunity will be standing at the door and its desire will be to have us. 
So unity then is a result of having the same love. But second, we see that this love in action is seen by being in agreement. What does it mean to be in agreement or in full accord? Well, to take a hypothetical example, let's take the Philippians members meeting for an example. Let's say the Philippians were meeting to determine whether or not to send Paul another monetary gift as a means to care for him as he labored for the gospel. Because as Paul writes in other letters, they had already sent multiple uh, gifts to him to support him. Being in agreement would not mean for all of them to vote in such a way that they would end up with a yes vote from everyone in the Philippian church. It could turn out being 60% yes and 40% no for different reasons. But the agreement would not, the agreement would be based not on voting on what everyone wants. Instead, it would be based on what they are gathered around, which is Christ and His gospel. It would be a love that agrees to keep Christ and His gospel at the center of their unity, regardless of what their personal preference was. So we see this unity played out by having the same love and being in agreement. And this brings us to our second point. We've seen the mandate, and now we look at the means, which is to be done in humility, verses 3 to 4. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambitious or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here Paul directs us to the means of accomplishing unity, which is in humility. Now humility has to do with an attitude of mind. It is when a person has a low opinion of his own importance. It is when a person puts the needs of others before his own. This mindset was seen negatively in the Roman world that the Philippians were in. It was looked down upon. It was seen as a weakness. For Paul, though, and for Christians who belong to Christ's kingdom, humility is a virtue. Humility is a fruit of the Spirit. Humility is something that we are now able to practice because of Christ's work and because He lives in us. To understand what humility looks like, Paul gives us some help by describing what it is not and what it is. So let's look at the first description here in verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul says, to be humble is to not do things out of selfishness or conceit. Selfish ambition refers to putting one's desires forward or before other before others or to be self-seeking. This is what drove the preachers in Rome that were seeking their own desires that Paul wrote about in chapter 1 when he was imprisoned. They were after what they wanted. They weren't looking 
to benefit the advancement of the gospel. But the second thing that we are told not to do is to not to do anything out of conceit. Conceit can be also described as vain glory or a glory that is self-proclaimed. It means to boast about a glory that one does not have. So Paul says, don't do that. Don't be self-centered. Don't be self-seeking. Don't proclaim your own glory. He says, do, do not be motivated by selfish desires or anything that promotes a glory that you do not have. This is a bad attitude or a bad mindset to have. Instead, he says, humility is the way. He says, count others more significant than yourself. So what this does not mean is that we are not to have a false humility by saying that others are better than us. Because the fact, it may be true that if you play basketball, someone else may be better at you at basketball. Or you may be better than that person at basketball. So it would not be to say, oh, you are better than I am. Because that would be false humility, right? Or if in a marriage, for example, let's say, the wife cooks better than the husband. If the wife were to say, husband, you cook way better, more delicious than I do. Your food is so good and yummy. It may be that the husband doesn't know how to cook. But it would be not accurate or not true for her to say, oh yeah, you are a better cook than I am. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, it means to care for others by putting their needs ahead of your own. And so the first description of what humility is, is it's seen as not being selfish or conceited, but instead it means to see the needs of others first. The next way Paul describes humility is by providing more clarity. And he says, humble people don't look at their own needs alone. Paul says, don't be so focused on your own way on your own perceived good. Have the needs and well-being of others in mind. This mandate is given to a local church as a whole in this context, but it begins by applying it individually as Christians within that whole. So we are called to look out for the well-being of others. Many years ago, I attended a church that went through many divisions, three of them to be exact. And it all started when the pastor um, passed away, which then led to two groups that were formed within that congregation, both with different desires. One group desired to come up with a search committee to find a pastor who was qualified to lead the sheep. The other group, was set on choosing someone from within the church, specifically from within that group. In this group, there were two leaders, church leaders, who believed that they were called to take this position. And they each had family and friends who took their sides. 
And I remember there was a lot of selfish ambition, a lot of conceit that took place for a few months. It, it got to the point where it was very uncomfortable going to this. Um, you didn't know what was going to happen. And I remember that the, that people from the second group demanded their interest be met because of their contributions to the church. Others from that group believed that their desires were more important because of their faithfulness to the church. So this led to disunity that hindered the advancement of the gospel. It created nasty divisions in the church that ended up in folks suing one another for defamation and other things. And the church went from being for having 120 members to 40 members after the division took place. Eighty thought it wasn't worth staying, so they left. The other 40 stayed. But within a year, they also had another division of their own. So this tarnished the testimony of the church. Many of the neighbors in the, in the, in the community, on many occasions heard the arguing. They witnessed the police officers show up to restore the peace within the church. There was no humility, only selfish ambition and conceit, seeking self-interest. If only there had been the seeking of the interest of others, or mainly the interests of Christ, grounded in the gospel of Christ. Now, looking at what Paul says, I believe there's a few reasons why Christians are not to be selfish or conceited, or are not to look out for their own interests. The first reason is that it brings death and destruction. These things point back to what Adam and Eve did in the garden in their rebellion against God, which was centered around their pride. Their selfishness led them to want to go after their own desires of wanting to become like God. So they acted foolishly by ignoring the truths of God and actually rejecting God and doing what they wanted, which resulted in death and destruction, which is the world that we now find ourselves in. Another reason that we're called not to do this is because it bears false witness about God. This is not why we were created for. This is not why, as Christians, we were redeemed for. When we choose to have this mindset, a mindset that is self-centered and conceited and seeking self-interest, we lie about the character of God, saying that, that, that this is how He is with us, which is not true. Another thing that we find is that it gets in the way of contending together for the gospel. As Christians, we've been called to go into the world and to make disciples, teaching them what the Lord has taught us about Himself. But selfishness, conceit, seeking our own interests, sets us on a course to make disciples of ourselves, teaching others what we want them to know about us, rather than what Christ wants them to know about Him. So have we, as we've seen, Paul says, because you are recipients of God's grace in your comfort, love, and fellowship, complete my joy by having this mindset. Do not be selfish, seeking your own interests, but instead be selfless and look to the interests of others. So this brings us to our third point for this morning. We have seen the mandate, strive for unity, the means in humility, and now we turn to the model, Jesus Christ the Lord.
These are some of the most amazing verses here in the New Testament, verses 5 through 11. And it appears to be a hymn or a poem that was used around the 6th or 7th century. And this passage holds a lot of rich truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And while there are many questions or things that can be said about this passage, Paul's purpose in writing these verses was not to create um, discussion of going back and forth about different theories. Instead, Paul's purpose in writing these verses was to lead us to worship Christ so that we would imitate Christ in His obedience to the Father and service towards others. So what we'll do here is we'll make some observation about Christ's humility and then seek to apply it to our lives. Look at verse 5 with me. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul clarifies what mindset we are to have when he writes, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the mindset or attitude that Christ had and that Christians are called to strive for. And there are three things that we see in verses 5-8 through eight about Christ's humility. The first thing we, we find about Christ's humility is that we, we see His humility in His surrender, or in His surrendering of His, de- of, of, of his status. In chapter 6, we read, This mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul shows us Christ's humility by showing us how Christ, the Son of God, willingly surrendered his status as God. In this verse, we see Christ's divine nature as he existed before he took on the human nature. Here in verse 6, we find that Christ was in the form of God and that the equality with God was not something that he held on to in order to use it for his own advantage as he became a man. And this points us to Jesus' equality with God being in the nature or the essence of God. And I think we can learn some things about the character of God in the person of Jesus in these passages. In these passages. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the image and revelation of God. So Jesus, the Son of God, who always existed, was the richest of the rich. He possessed all majesty. He always enjoyed the blessing of being in perfect communion and relationship with the Father and the Spirit. This Jesus was worshipped by all of the angels. He experienced a satisfaction that was unlike any other. It was a full and complete satisfaction. And it is this Jesus that willingly surrendered or laid aside His status as God when He obeyed the Father in coming into this world on His rescue mission. In His surrendering of His equality with God, we see that Jesus is not selfish or conceited. He was not self-centered looking at His own benefits. He was looking at the benefit of others, of His people. And it's because Jesus is God 
that he was humble and a giver. This is part of who he is. This is part of his character. As a matter of fact, to be selfish or conceited would be to go against his character. Jesus could have and had every right to be conceited or selfish, but he didn't because that is not part of his character. That is not who he is. So I have a question for us to meditate on this morning if we are Christians. Do you find it difficult to surrender what you've been entrusted with for the good of others? Do you find it difficult to surrender your the possessions that you've been entrusted with? Your finances, your time. We saw how Adam, a created being with dignity and honor, who was made in the image of God, as we were reminded uh, last week with uh, Paul, we see that Paul, I mean, we see that Adam wanted to be like God. He wanted to be exalted. He rejected God's word and thus became cursed. Here we see Jesus, who was God himself, surrendering his equality, not by getting rid of it, Instead, by not using it to his advantage, and as we'll see, he took on the nature of man, becoming a slave, so that he could offer his life as a ransom for many. Taking Adam's curse on himself, and then was exalted by the Father. Now, if you're visiting us today, and you know yourself not to be a Christian, we are thankful that you're here. We we welcome you. The Bible teaches us that we are all like Adam in that we desire to take what is not ours. And the most serious way that we have done this is by wanting to take God's right place of authority over ourselves and wanting Him to surrender to our desires. What is the way to become someone who surrenders rather than usurps? How do we become this kind of people? Well, the answer to that is by trusting in Jesus, who gave of himself so that selfish sinners could receive God's forgiveness and new life. And if you want to know more about this gospel, feel free to ask the person that you came with, myself, Pastor Jeremy, or anyone here in this church, and we would be more than happy to to share more about this news with you. The Bible calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in this Christ who did this perfectly as we are looking at in this passage. So we see the humility of Christ in His suffering for the good of others. But the second way we see Christ's humility is in His service. Verse 7, it says, But Jesus emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. From the very beginning of the Bible, we see that man was created by God. Man was created to serve God by representing Him in His world. And here we see that Jesus, the Son of God, took on the nature of man. That is, He added our humanity to His deity and became a servant. 
And once again, this shows us or reveals to us the character of God in His service. I want you to turn with me to the left over to the Gospel of John. Uh, so you can keep your finger there in Philippians, but in John 13, 3-5, we get a picture of a specific time where Jesus demonstrated this humility of service. Beginning in verse 3, we read, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. This task of washing feet was reserved for the lowest of the low in this culture. And I can imagine, you can imagine with me, Jesus and his disciples entering the room, talking, you know, maybe tired from being uh, ministering to others. Uh, this was a culture that uh, had open-toed sneakers or sandals. And they had dirt roads, so their feet were dirty, muddy even. So they come in, and there's no one waiting at the door to wash the feet. And they all sit, and they're kind of looking around like, okay, well, who's going to wash our feet? Because it was part of the custom. Imagine Peter saying, I'm not going to wash the feet. You know, feet are nasty. You know, let Mark do it. No, let, you know, and then they start going in their mind like, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? And then all of a sudden, Jesus stands up, ties a towel around his waist, gets some water, and he begins to wash their feet. He begins to serve them. He begins to do the task that was reserved for the lowest being the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the God who created the world, the one by whom all things were created, and without Him nothing was created, says the Scriptures. Philippians 2.6 and this passage here in John 13 shows us that Jesus' service of uh, His humility and His service of others and foot washing are related. By washing the disciples' feet, Jesus was showing them the character and the attitude of God. That is, He is not a God who is selfish or conceited. Instead, He is one who looks at the interests of others by putting their needs before His own. This was to point them to what He would do not too long after, which would be giving His life as a sacrifice to pay for their sins, to pay for our sins. This is what the Gospels reveal about Jesus. Mark writes in Mark 10.45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Luke writes in chapter 19 and 10, He came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus was intentional in coming into this world because He wanted to obey the Father in His plan of salvation for man. 
He willingly put his status aside and his rights aside by coming into this world to give his life as a ransom for many. He did this willingly. He chose to serve us. Imagine what First Baptist Church would look like if each of us were to lay aside whatever status or position we may think we have or whatever glory we may think we have by humbly serving others like Jesus served us. That would be a picture, quite a picture. Christian, is this the attitude that you have towards others? An attitude that seeks to serve in humility for the good of others? Or is it one where you only seek your own interest? To seek how you can receive rather than how you can give. The Bible calls us to turn from our selfish ways and to walk in the footsteps of Christ. And if you identify more with being selfish and conceited, which the Bible, I think, makes clear that is all of us, then there is good news. Christ has surrendered His status by coming to serve us, as Vinny read earlier, by putting His interests aside, not seeking His own good, but seeking our good. And in Him we have forgiveness of sin, and we now have the ability to follow in His footsteps in humble obedience. So I encourage all of us to act on Paul's words when he says that we are to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, as we strive to do this, it is going to require what one pastor describes as holy sweat as we exercise this holiness. It won't just begin to happen immediately. We must look to Christ as our motivation. We must look to Christ as our model. We must look to Christ as our source for accomplishing this. Because He has done this perfectly. We set our eyes on Him. Not that these things save us, but walking in His footsteps give testimony to the salvation that we have received. And how will you know that you are not acting selfishly or in conceit or conceitedly? Well, it is not when you stop being selfish or when you are no longer conceited. Rather, it is when you begin to surrender and to serve others. So we've seen the humility of Christ in His surrendering and in His service. We also see His humility in His sacrifice. In verse 8, we read, And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One of the things that we see in these verses is a description of how Jesus willingly descended lower and lower and lower for our good. We see here that this Jesus, the Son of God, fully equal to God, surrendered His status by willingly taking on Himself our nature for the purpose of entering into our human experience under the curse of the fall to serve us by doing what we could not do for ourselves, which was to make things right with God. And this is what Jesus did as He sacrificed His life for our salvation. He humbled Himself by obeying to the Father by obeying His plan, by leaving the highest position, which was equality with God, and going low 
very low, as low as he could go by offering his life. And it was an, it was offering his life by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree. The great and humble Savior embraced his mission to save us by enduring death, even death on a cross. So we've looked at Christ's humility. Now we see also Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation is seen in this kingdom lifestyle that he lived out that's contrary to this world. We see the reality of what Matthew writes in chapter 23, 12, where he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We see that this exaltation is a result of Christ's willingness to humble himself for the good of his people. And we see this exaltation in his position. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. As a result of his work, God the Father exalted him. And there is none other who has this position, no other man. In Philippi, the emperor was honored as Lord, but even that emperor sat under the authority of Christ. Jesus received the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before he took on flesh. By obeying the Father. We see this lordship in the name that God has given him. In this name that is above every name, Jesus Christ the Lord, which all will confess, as we see there in verse 11. This lordship means that Christ reigns over all of us. Over all. And for us that, that are in him, we are part of his kingdom. We are in him. And he is in us, and He knows us by name, and He loves us. This truth should warm our hearts, and it should impulse us to want to walk in His footsteps so that we would uh, serve others in humility. Apart from His Lordship, we also see His worship to wrap up in 10, 11, in 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As a result of this lordship that he holds, all people from all times and all places will bow down to him and confess that he is Lord. As we gather together this morning, we stand in unity with Christians from all over the world from all places and all times, who worship this exalted king. But there is a time coming where everyone will confess his lordship, even those that reject him now. For those of us that confess it now, we will rejoice at his coming. But for those who reject him now, we'll confess him then, but we'll do so with great sorrow. So because we have comfort in Christ, because of the great love and the depths to which Christ has gone to save us and to serve us, we are called to follow in His footsteps just as He did for the glory of God. In Christ's humility, to conclude, in His surrendering to the Father's will, His service for man's good and sacrifice for our salvation, the Father is glorified. And we see this unity 
that Paul calls us to have. There is no conceit or selfishness. There's no room for it. And we also see that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work as one in unity for our good, for God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you for being this God who delights in serving others. Father, we pray that you would enable us by your Spirit and your Word to follow in your footsteps and to be willing and ready to serve others with a joyful heart because this is what you have done for us. We pray that we would find joy in doing this just as you found joy in serving us so that in our doing, Lord, we would seek our good, build one another up so that you would be glorified. We acknowledge that we can't do this without you. So we pray that you would work this in our hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.